The following message is brought to you by Berean Bible Church and may be used and distributed free of charge. For more free audio, video, and text resources, be sure to visit www.bereanbiblechurch.org. Thank you. Good morning, Bereans. This morning, I want to look at a couple statements that Christ made that seem very contradictory. And, and I've heard people have problems with these things because they see stuff in the Scripture and they don't understand it, and it just gives them a chance to attack Scripture, to say, well, the Bible is inspired. Why does it say this here and this over here? And, and there are apparent contradictions, but hopefully this morning when we look at these things, we'll be able to understand what exactly is going on in these texts. Um, I want to begin by looking at a statement that Yeshua makes in the Gospel of Mark, which is, and He does this early on in His ministry. In the beginning of Mark 7, we see Yeshua engaging the Pharisees and scribes in a conversation about tradition. Now, they're upset because Yeshua's disciples weren't observing the tradition of the elders. Okay, It's not that they're not observing Scripture. Get that, okay? It's their tradition that they're not observing. We see that today, don't we? (laughs) Mark 7, 5. And the Pharisees and the scribes asked Him, Why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat with defiled hands. Now, the word defiled here is from the Greek koinao, and it doesn't have anything to do with hygiene. Now, these guys' hands are dirty. That's not what they're talking about. All right, It's talking about they're not ceremonial clean. They weren't washed as a religious ritual. And this particular ritual washing described here was in addition to the law. You're not going to find this in the Scripture. You've got to wash your hands before you do this. Okay? It's just not there. They, they added this. And people are always adding something to the Word of God. All right? The disciples were not observing the outward rituals which these Jews felt were very important. Which here means they're not observing the ceremonial washings before they ate. Now, the Jews were very particular about this because they were afraid of any uncleanness and they felt that washing their hands in this manner would protect them, okay? They probably didn't even use soap, okay? Because they just, it's just a ritual thing they're going through. They put great stock in the outward observance of certain traditions and ceremonies. And Yeshua confronts them on the fact that some of their traditions violate the commands of God. And He calls them hypocrites. He said, In vain they do worship Me, Teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. Do we see that today? People come up with stuff, the creeds or whatever, and they're like, you know, this is what the Bible said, that Jews are the Talmud, you know, okay? It's over the Scriptures. And they, they're teaching doctrine, and, it, and it's just the commandments of men is what they're doing. Well, then the Lord finishes his conversation with the scribes and the Pharisees, and he returns to the multitude, and he called the people again to himself, and he said to them, Hear me, all of you, and understand. So apparently the people, when they got in this conversation, they retreated from the presence of the delegation. Perhaps they were intimidated by these pious Jerusalem officials. But now as Yeshua speaks to the multitude, He's concerning the false ideas that the scribes and the Pharisees had. And I assume that the Pharisees were still there listening, but He's now addressing the crowd. And He says to them, There is nothing outside a person that going into Him can defile Him. But things that come out of a person, that's what defiles them. Now let me ask you something this morning. Do you understand how radical this statement is that the Lord's saying here? Do you understand how radical this is? Why is it so radical? He's going against the law and the prophets, okay? This is against the dietary laws. The Jews lived by these dietary laws. And he said, hey, nothing comes outside. That's not going to hurt you. What? You know, if I could try to give you an analogy, I think this would be similar to me standing up here today and saying, look, I want you all to understand, you are saved by your works. Okay, the only way a man can be right with God is if they work very hard at keeping the law. Every jot and every tittle. Faith alone will never, James tells us that, faith alone can't save you. Well, how would you respond to that? Stone, there you go, thank you. I think Rick Wells would pull me aside later and he'd be kind and gentle. Dave, you know, I think you're, I think you're whacked out there. I think you have a problem. You know? Mike would come up here and drag me out of the pulpit. Okay, Shut up, you heretic. You know, At least I hope that would happen. You know, I, th- I think too often we just, 
we let false doctrine go and we don't care. We don't do anything about it. You know, I mean, we're called to in Scripture, though. You know, I think we're trying to be too kind to people sometimes that, and we're letting things go that shouldn't. Well, that would be pretty radical if I did something like that, and, and I hope I would get some kind of negative response there, all right? Well, that's about how radical this statement is that Yeshua is making here. Because up to this point in Mark, Yeshua had shaken them up by his seeming disregard of the law. All right? You heard what he read this morning from Matthew 5, you know? You've got to keep this, okay? This is really important. But he disregarded the law in Mark 1, 40 and 41. He says, And the leper came to him, imploring him, kneeling to him, if you, will, you, if you will, you can make me clean. He says, move with pity. He stretched out his hand and he touched him and said to him, I will be clean. What's wrong here? What's the violation of the law? You can't touch a leper. Okay? You can't. And they're like, they knew this was a violation. Okay? They, listen, these are not your average church-going people here. The Jews knew the Scriptures. Okay? These guys knew what the Bible said. They didn't understand what it meant most of the time, but they knew what it said, and they knew you cannot touch a leper. Well, then Yeshua seems to go against their view of the Sabbath in Mark 2, and He says, He said to them, The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath, so the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. But now in our text, Yeshua directly speaks against the dietary laws. There is nothing outside of a person, that'd be any kind of food, that by going into him can defile him, but the things that come out of a person, that's what defiles him. Now let's keep reading. He says in 17, And when he had entered the house and left the people, the disciples asked him about the parable. So the disciples were like, are you saying... What did you say? What did you mean by that? You couldn't be saying that food didn't matter anymore. So he says in verse 18, He said to them, Then are you also without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from outside cannot defile him? Now the word defile here is that which is common. That which is opposed to set aside for God's use. You know, For God it was holy. Things were set aside for Him holy. Things that were common... They just, they're just common stuff, okay? The Lord is referring to food and drink here entering a man. It can't make a man common. It can't make a man defiled. And he says in 19, since it enters not into his heart, but into his stomach, and is expelled. Now watch what he says here. Thus he declared all foods clean. Now just in case you miss what he said when he said there's nothing outside a person that going into him can defile him, he, said, he makes it really clear. I want you guys to not miss this. All foods are clean. That makes it pretty clear. It should be noted in this instance in Mark, he's way more radical than what he says in Matthew in the parallel story in chapter 15. And matter of fact, he doesn't even talk. Luke doesn't even bring this story up or mention it. So, we also see this in, in Acts 10 that this stuff, this same truth is revealed to Peter. In a dream, and I'm sure you're familiar with that, that you know, foods traditionally deemed profane or unclean, they're not that way anymore, he said. And this is quite a shocking statement to the Jews because food was a major consideration under the Old Covenant, as is clear from a reading of Leviticus. All right, Look at Leviticus. And Yahweh spoke to Moses and Aaron, saying, Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, These, these are the living things that you may eat among all the animals that are on the earth. So, okay, here's, here's what you're allowed to eat. These are your foods you can eat. Among all the animals that are on the earth, whatever parts the hoof and is cloven-footed and chews the cud, among animals, you can eat. Okay? That's, that's it, people. Pick when they... Oh, let me ask you this. Can we eat rabbit? Huh? Does rabbit part the hoof? Nope. Does it chew the cud? Yep, but it doesn't part the hoof. Got to be both. Got a hoof. Got to be both. Okay, so that... That's kind of a bummer. I like rabbit. All right. <laughs> he said, These you may eat, all that are in the waters, everything that has fins and scales. Oh, that is sad. Okay. Because last night, you know, we went out to eat, and uh, my wife and I both violated the dietary laws. She had lobster, and I had ribs. Okay. Pig and <laughs> shellfish. You can't, you can't do that. Okay. So, so thankfully, I saw some thing on Facebook someone put on last week telling us that we were under the dietary laws. And I'm like, wow, you're so foolish and so sad. You're missing out on some good stuff, okay? 
whether in the seas or in the rivers, you may eat. But anything in the seas or rivers that does not have fins and scales or swarming creatures in the waters and of the living creatures that are in the waters is detestable to you. You shall regard them as detestable. You shall not eat any of their flesh. You shall detest their carcasses. Everything in the waters that does not have fins and scales is detestable to you. The word detestable here is the Hebrew word sheketz. And Brown Driver Briggs says it's the detestable thing, an idol, an unclean thing, an abomination, a detestation. Strong's calls it filth. So there are certain laws in the Tanakh that God gave about eating relative to what they eat. Now, the purpose of these laws, some people argue, okay, what was it? Was the Lord just trying to create a unique situation among the Jews? Or was he trying to keep the people from eating something that will be harmful to them? Okay, I don't really know. All right? I mean, I know our conditions are a little bit different today with refrigeration and everything, so I don't know. But I think the primary issue in the Tanakh was that God wanted a peculiar people. He wanted a people that were set apart in their ways from others. And by virtue of this diet that God prescribed, they had been set apart. They, they couldn't hang out with their neighbors. They couldn't eat with their neighbors because their diet was so different. So they kept them apart. And God wanted it that way. He didn't want them to intermingle. Now, the word unclean here is the Hebrew word tameh, which means foul. And by these you shall become unclean. Whoever touches their carcass shall be unclean until the evening. And it's in a religious sense. They're defiled. They're polluted. So the law said you'd be defiled if you ate these unclean things. But Yeshua comes along and says, it's not what goes in your mouth that defiles you. All right? It does, it's not that at all. So that is incredibly radical. He's setting aside the dietary laws of the Mosaic Covenant. The word defile here is the Greek word koinao, and it means to make common, to defile, to pollute, to be unclean. It's used 16 times in 12 verses in the New Testament. <clears throat> it's used 13 times in relation to food defiling a person. Kanao is used in this text in Acts 10. It's an interesting text. The next day as they were on their journey and approaching the city, Peter went up on a rooftop about the sixth hour to pray. He became hungry and he wanted something to eat. But while they were preparing it, he fell into a trance and saw the heavens open and something like a great sheet descending being let down by its four corners upon the earth. In it were all kinds of animals and reptiles and birds of the air. And there came a voice to him, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. What's that tell you? There was no vegetables in that sheet. Okay? <laughs> He's saying, you need, some, you need some protein, Peter. All right? And Peter responds, Not so, Lord. Is that a ridiculous statement? You can't say Lord and not so, okay? That just doesn't, that doesn't go together at all, all right? If he's Lord, then you just answer yes. But, but he says, I have never eaten anything that is common or unclean. All right, that's our word, kanao, they're uncommon. And the voice came to him again a second time. What God has made clean, do not call common. So here, God is teaching Peter the same thing that Yeshua taught him about 10 years earlier. All food is clean. Now, many believe that the law ended at the cross. You've heard that teaching, I'm sure. People say, well, the law was all over. It ended at the cross. And they'll use verses like this to try to prove that. See, the dietary laws don't vet because it ended at the cross. All right? But what do they do with Yeshua's words in our text in Mark? That's before the cross, okay? Years before the cross. He hadn't even died yet, so how are they saying that set the dietary laws apart before he'd even died? Well, how do we reconcile this statement with the text that was read this morning? Matthew 5, 17 and 18. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Now, the law of the prophets <clears throat> indicates that the Lord is speaking here about the Tanakh, the whole thing. If you trace these, these, this idea of law and prophets through your Bible, you'll find that wherever the expression is used, it includes the entire Tanakh. All right, The rabbis had gone through the Torah and codified all the scriptures, and they came up with 613 laws. <laughs> then they added a whole bunch on top of that, okay? So, 613 of them. All right? He says, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot. None of these 613 laws are going to pass until everything is accomplished. Now, so they're all in effect, until heaven and earth pass away. Now, the word iota here, 
was like an apostrophe. And presuming Yeshua originally spoke the statement in Hebrew, and I believe he absolutely did, he was a Hebrew, he spoke in Hebrew, iota would stand for the yod, the Hebrew yod, which was just like a little apostrophe. That's the tenth letter of the Hebrew alphabet. The dot here is a little projecting part at the foot of a letter, like you make a T, and if you make a little curl on the end, that's, that's kind of what he's talking about there. So he's saying not even the smallest part of the law will be abolished until heaven and earth pass away. Now, the phrase heaven and earth pass away refers to the duration of the whole authority of the Tanakh. Now, Yeshua is saying not a single item of the law, not one of these 613 commandments, is going to be changed until heaven and earth pass away. Is that what Yeshua is saying here? Well, please notice the word until. And the first until is most people ignore. So, if heaven and earth have not passed away, as the majority of the church teaches they have not, right? They've not passed away. Then all 613 commandments are still in effect. Every bit of it. But let me ask you this. Who is under the 613 laws? The Jews, okay. Are these 613 laws being obeyed today by Israel? Okay, now if you've been paying attention the last five weeks, there is no Israel today. So they can't be do, so the answer's got to be no. They can't be obeying them. They don't exist. All right, those people are not Israelites over there. So no, these are not being carried out. Well, the question is then, well, when did Israel stop obeying these 613 laws? August of AD 70, okay, when the temple was destroyed. So you see the problem here? Believers, here's what we need to understand. And I think some people don't get this. As Gentiles, we are not, never have been under the law, Torah. Look at what Paul wrote to the Romans, chapter 2, verse 12. For all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law. And all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. Law here is Torah, the Jews, law of Moses, the writings, the prophets. He says, for all who have sinned without the law. Who is that? Gentiles. Didn't have the law, so we sin without it. And those who have sinned under the law, that's Jews, right? So the Gentiles don't have Torah. Listen, the Gentiles had no prophets. They had no biblical writers. They didn't have the feast days. They had nothing. They didn't have the revelation of God. They didn't have the law of God. Only Israel had that. Israel was to be a light to the nations. They failed miserably at that. But if you wanted to worship God, you came through Israel. All right? Well, look at what Paul says in verse 14. For when the Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law unto themselves, even though they don't have the law. This, the misinterpretation of this verse has done, I think, great damage to theology. Okay, Because many see this as saying that God has written on the heart of man a basic moral code. Everybody's got this moral code, and they know what they should do. The code is similar to that contained in the Ten Commandments. And this universal moral code would be like, don't steal, don't cheat, you know, honor your parents, keep the Word of God, I mean, keep your Word, you know, stuff like that, don't kill, and so on. That's not what this verse is saying. And I don't think there's anything in Scripture that tells us that, okay? Men don't have this thing, you know, that they know what to do right or wrong. Men just constantly do evil. They constantly violate the Word of God, and they don't have a clue what it is, all right? The key to understanding this verse here is translation. And most of the major translations have missed it here, and their mistake has led to this faulty view that all men have an innate knowledge of God. The Christian Standard Bible got this right when it translated this way. So when the Gentiles, who do not by nature have the law, do you see the difference? Who do not have the law by nature do the things required of the law, or do not have by nature have the they don't have it. N.T. Wright said this, the phrase by nature refers with Nature goes with possession of the law, not with doing the law. And that's what we see in the Christian Standard Bible. They do not have, by nature, the law. So, he, Wright would agree with the CSB translation. Those who don't have the law, by nature, were Gentiles, right? They didn't have it. So Paul's distinguishing here between Jews who were born with Torah and Gentiles who, by nature, were not born. They didn't have the law. They don't have it. Yet the Gentiles, he says, are doing the things of the law. Now the ESV here, by nature, is from the Greek word phusis. And that Paul uses this word to refer to possession of the law is clear, I think, from his use of phusis in Romans 2.27, where he says, 
Then he who is physically uncircumcised but keeps the law. I mean, that should make you laugh, okay? How can you be uncircumcised and keep the law? The law commands you to be circumcised, okay? So you're like, what, what, who is he talking about here? A word here, physicals, foozies. And this is almost identical to the point he makes in verse 14. Here, the physically uncircumcised who keep Torah refers to Gentiles. This can't refer to people who are naturally or innately circumcised, but refers to those who do not physically have the law. We could translate 14 this way. To those who do not physically have the law, they do the things of the law. Cranefield says this, This view that they are Gentile Christians is found in Augustine and in the earliest Latin commentary which has come down to us. Now, we could translate it, when the Gentiles who by nature do not have the law do what the law requires, not having a law, they're a law to themselves. <clears throat> they don't have the law, but they do the things of the law. How's that possible? Because they're Christians, and the law of God is written on their heart. That's how I understand it. The Gentiles who don't have the law, they, by nature, they don't have that, but they're doing what it requires. And you say, how can they do it? Because they're Christians, and once they've trusted Christ, the law of God, the new covenant, is written on their heart. They've trusted Christ. The requirement is fulfilled in them. Look at what Paul <clears throat> writes to the Corinthians. To the Jews, I became as a Jew in order to win Jews. To those under the law, I became as one under the law, though not being myself under the law, that I might win those under the law. To those outside the law, I became as one outside the law, not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside the law. Gentiles are not under the law. The law was never to them. Notice what Paul writes here about himself. He says, though not being myself under the law. And you're like, wait a minute, okay. we got a problem here because he's a Jew. How's he not under the law? Hang on to that. We'll come back to it in a few minutes, okay? So how do we reconcile what Yeshua says in Mark? <clears throat> There's nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him. Thus he declared all foods clean. And what he says in Matthew, that until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. So you've got to say, which is it? Is it all in effect until, it, it, until heaven and earth pass away? Or are foods clean now? Which, way, which one is it? Was this law still in effect or was it canceled? Well, when Yeshua spoke these words in Mark 7, heaven and earth had not passed away. He hadn't even gone to the cross yet. So this poses a dilemma. And people come across this and they see it and they say, see this, you know, you're saying this. No, this, the Bible has contradictions and it's just not from God. Well, we know that heaven and earth didn't pass away until A.D. 70. Okay? But look at what Hebrews says in 8.13. He says, and speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete. You get that, right? If you get something new, get rid of the old, okay? You're under the old, now you're under the new. It's a different covenant. What is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. It's becoming. It's not gone yet. It's ready to vanish. It hasn't vanished yet. This was written in the first century to Hebrew believers. And this was around AD 65. The Old Covenant had not, had not yet become obsolete, but it was growing. It was getting that way. It didn't become obsolete until the temple was destroyed in AD 70. Now, the old heaven and earth was becoming obsolete when the new covenant, the church, is growing to maturity. So you've got one fading away, that old heaven and earth. It's in the process. That process started very early. We'll talk about that in a minute. But it carried on until A.D. 70. Look what Paul wrote to the Ephesians. He said, Your fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Yeshua Himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure, being joined together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In Him... Now, this, he's being joined together and it's growing. So we see a process happening. Now, most buildings don't grow, okay? Into a holy temple in the Lord. In Him you are being built together into a dwelling place of God in the Spirit. The process was occurring. It hadn't been completed yet. But the clear blessing of the new covenant was that God would dwell with His people. But the temple's not finished yet, so God hasn't moved in yet. Man's access to God the consum didn't happen until the consummation of the new covenant. It didn't take place until the tabernacle was destroyed. At that time, God moved in with His people. Hebrews 9.80 says, By this the Holy Spirit indicates that the way into the holy place is not yet opened as long as the first section is still standing. Now, this might be better translated while the first tabernacle still has any standing. 
So while the Old Covenant was still in force, as long as that Old Covenant was there, in effect, men did not have access to the presence of God prior to Yeshua's second coming. As long as the first tabernacle stood. So he destroyed that at his coming. So until that happened, nobody went to heaven. Okay. So Gentiles never under the law. But it's not only Yeshua who teaches the Jews were free from the law. Paul seems to teach the same thing. So Yeshua's teaching this Jews this. That would be very confusing. But Paul taught it also. In Colossians, look what he says. Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in question of food and drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon, or a Sabbath. These are shadows of the things to come. Who's he talking to here? It's got to be Jews, though, right, in Colossians? Because the Gentiles didn't have the, the Sabbath, the new moon, and all these festivals. That, that was Israel's stuff. These are shadows. So Paul says, don't let anyone judge you regard old covenant shadows. He's saying, you're under the new covenant, and you're free from the old covenant laws. How? I mean, if AD 70 had not yet come yet, how could the Jews at this point be free from the law when Yeshua said it wouldn't pass away until heaven and earth passed away? There's another event which ended the law on an individual level before AD 70. What was it? Hmm? It was the new birth. The new birth. Okay? When a Jew trusted Christ, he's born again, right? Therefore, He's free from the law. Look what Paul says in Romans. Or do you not know, brothers, from, and they should, from speaking to those who know the law. Okay, you guys know this stuff. The law is binding on a person as long as he lives. If a married man is bound by the law to her husband while he lives, but if the husband dies, she's released from the law of marriage. Accordingly, you would be called an adulteress if she lives with another man while her husband is alive. But if her husband dies, she's free from that law. And if she marries another man, she's not an adulteress. Likewise, my brothers, you have died to the law through the body of Christ, so that you may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead, in order that we may bear fruit to God. Now the law here is Torah. Paul is dealing with specifically with the Jewish believers, because Gentiles were never under this law. And Paul says the law is binding on a person only as long as he lives. Does that make sense? I mean... <laughs> The law doesn't have any authority over dead people, does it? Okay, none at all. All right. The word binding here that he uses, uh, and the word master in 6.14, are the same Greek word. It's kuriuo, and it means to have dominion over, to exercise lordship. It's a simple axiomatic truth. Death breaks all dominion of the law. I don't think anybody's going to question that. <laughs> Hopefully not, okay? <laughs> Why is this important to understand? <clears throat> Because the Apostle is not embarking on a discussion of marriage and remarriage. That's important here, okay? That's not his issue. If we try to make that such, I think we're going to miss the point that he's making. He speaks of fidelity of marriage in other places. But here, he's merely using this as an illustration or metaphor to make his point. And what's the point? Jewish marital law declared a married woman bound to her husband as long as he lived. That's a real simple analogy to help us understand the axiom that law only applies when people are alive. The point here is that death ends the law that binds two people permanently together in a marriage. I think everybody understands this. This is just a simple analogy. Just like the husband died in the previous verse, he says, you also have died. You have died to the law. He's telling the Jews this. When you trusted Christ, you died to the law. And died here is a passive indicative. You were made dead to the law. The passive voice points to the sovereign, gracious work of God in applying the work of Christ to them regarding the reign of sin and its jurisdiction. It points back to our having become united with Christ in His death. Now, he's telling them, you used to be in a covenant relationship with the law. You used to have this obligation to which you were mandated to bring about fulfillment. He's telling them, that changed. You were made to die to the law. Literally, you were put to death. You were killed in regards to the law. The death is clear. It's their co-crucifixion with the Lord, Romans 6, that's, that he, he's their representative. He died on the cross. We died when He died, is what He's telling them. And by faith, believers have been united to Christ, Romans 6, 5, so that His death becomes our death. And therefore, Paul says, you have died to the law. Christ bore the punishment that the law required, and Christ fulfilled the perfect obedience the law demanded. So in Him, they're released from the law, 
Which means, people, our salvation is secure because it's not about us. It's about what God has done. He says, you have died to the law so that, that's a hinah purpose clause, you may belong to another. It shows the reason for death to the law. It said, so that you can be married to another. Now you might say, well, how do you be married to another if you're dead? We go back to Romans 6, 5. What else are we joined with Christ in? His resurrection. Okay. For if you have been united with him in a death like this, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection. Okay, so we shared the death, we share the resurrection. They no longer have obligations to the old husband. The Jews were married to this law. That is, they were bound by the law, bound to the obligation the law demanded from them, bound to maintain the law, to keep it. And they'd be judged on their faithfulness to the law. But when Christ died, the law no longer applied and no longer had any hold on them. It cannot condemn them. It has been satisfied. The punishment has been rendered in full. And now we have the new covenant relationship. They have a new husband, the Lord Yeshua the Christ. And that's why Paul says to the Jews, I became as a Jew in order to win the Jews. To those under the law, I became as one under the law, though not being under the law myself, that I might win those under the law. Paul says, I'm not under the law, because he understood. He wasn't under the law because he had died to it when he trusted Christ. First century Jewish believers died to the law, but in AD 70, the law died with the destruction of the Jewish temple. It put it in an end for everybody, which was the ending of the old heaven and earth, the, the destruction of it. So when a Jew trusted in Christ, they died to the law and all its demands. Now notice what we see in Acts <clears throat> 21. He says, now we had come to Jerusalem. That's important. I want you to keep that in your mind. They're in Jerusalem. All right, big difference here. The brothers received us gladly. On the following day, Paul went with us to James, and the others were present. After greeting them, he related one by one the things that God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. And when they heard it, they glorified God, and they said to him, You see, brother, how many thousands there are among the Jews of those who have believed, and they are zealous for the law. All right, now I want you to notice what we have here. We have believing Jews, but they're zealous for the law. Why were these Jews so zealous for the law if it had passed away? What's the deal here? The key is they're in Jerusalem. That's very important. Apparently, the Christian Jews who lived in Jerusalem, they continued to keep the law, not knowing they weren't under it, but they continued to keep it so they'd have an opportunity to minister to their brothers and sisters in Christ. All right? Look what happened in Galatians. I love this text. And when Cephas, that's Peter, he came to Antioch. Paul says, I opposed him to his face. That's bold because Peter's the first pope. And man, here he is confront, <laughs> conf confronting the first pope. You know, he doesn't, Paul doesn't care. He confronted him to his face. That's what's supposed to happen when people get out of line. All right. And why did he confront him? He says, for before certain men came from James, well, before these guys came down here from Jerusalem, he's eating with the Gentiles. So Peter's like, cool, have, have a ham sandwich. You know, yeah, pass the shrimp, you know. He's just enjoying this food with the Gentile brothers and sisters, just having a good time. But then these guys from James come down from Jerusalem, and when they came, he drew back and separated himself. Okay, sorry guys, I can't eat with you anymore. I'm going over to the kosher table, okay? And he's only eating now with the Jewish people. Because why? Because he said he feared the circumcision party. He's afraid of them, okay? And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him. So, see, he's, his hypocrisy is spreading. People see this, oh yeah, okay, you're gonna, I'm going to follow you over to the kosher table. And the Gentiles are like, what are we now? You know, chopped liver, you're leaving us all alone over here? Nobody can eat with us? And he says, even Barnabas was led away by the hypocrisy. So it's just, you know, Paul's just irate about this. He goes, listen, you're okay eating with them, and now these guys come down and everything changes? Why did everything change? Well, James is a leader in the church in Jerusalem. And he was a godly man. You know, he had the nickname Camel Knees because he spent so much time in prayer. He was in Jerusalem ministering among the Jews. And so it was really important that it was because he was with them, he wouldn't do anything to upset them, to get them upset. And that the law of God was everything to them. So he is keeping the law. He's meticulously, you know, carrying out the customs that he had to do. And he no doubt would follow the dietary laws. So let's go back in our story to Acts. All right. Acts 21.21. 21. 
And they have been told about you, he's saying these people, these believers, Jews, have been told about you, that you teach all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake the law of Moses, telling them not to circumcise their children or walk according to the customs. Was Paul doing this? Yes, he, he certainly was. In Colossians he says, Therefore let no one pass judgment on you in question of food or drink or with respect to a festival. That's a Jewish festival, the new moon, the Sabbath. He said, don't worry about that stuff. Okay? You guys don't have to worry about that. And so they're saying, well, he's just telling them they don't have to care about the law of Moses. Back to Acts. What then is to be done? They're certainly going to hear that you have come. Do therefore what we tell you. We have four men who are under a vow. Take these men, purify yourself along with them, and pay their expenses so that they may shave their heads. This, thus, all will know that there is nothing and what they have been told about you. See, if you do this, then they'll say, oh, okay, that was what we heard about him was wrong. But that you yourself also live in observance of the law. But as for the Gentiles who have believed, we have sent a letter with our judgment that they should abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols, from blood, from what has been strangled, and from sexual immorality. So what's Paul's response to this? I would have said, you guys are nuts. Get the heck out of here. I'm not doing any of that stuff. We're free from that stuff. Paul didn't do that. He didn't respond that way at all. Notice what he did. Then Paul took the men, and the next day he purified himself along with them and went into the temple, giving notice when the days of purification would be fulfilled and the offering presented to each one of them. So Paul went through the Jewish purification. He offered a sacrifice. Why did he do this? Because he's in Jerusalem, and he's trying to win the Jews who had, he had to be careful so he didn't offend them so he could win them. And that's why he said to the Jews, I became as a Jew, so I could win the Jews. So people, there is no contradiction between Yeshua saying dietary laws don't matter anymore and what he said about the law remains intact until heaven and earth pass away because the law did remain intact until A.D. 70 when the temple was destroyed. But these Israelites were not under it when they came to trust Christ because they died to the law and then were raised to new life in Christ. So they died to all of its demands. So there is no contradiction here at all. Now some see Yeshua's statement in Mark 7 as a prolepsis. You guys familiar with that? I'm sure you've heard the term before. A prolepsis is a representation or assumption of a future act or development as if presently existing or accomplished. In other words, this is so sure to happen, we, we act like it's already happened. All right, And that makes sense. Because what Yeshua was teaching was that the law was beginning to fade away. He taught that very, very early in his ministry. The process had started. They were passing away. Now, while the church is growing to maturity, and it's all going to culminate in the destruction of the temple. Now, Yeshua spoke of this process of the law going out and the church growing to maturity very early in his ministry. Speaking to the Pharisees and Sadducees, he says, even now, now, the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. This axe speaks of judgment. Judgment that was to come upon Jerusalem in 40 years. And Yeshua said the axe is already coming down. The process has already started. So when Yeshua speaks of the abolishment of the dietary law, He's saying that process has already begun, people. It's already begun. All right. And all, once they trusted Christ, like I said, that law was done. It had no jurisdiction over every, any believer after Pentecost. Now, the Jews <coughs> were free from the law through the body of Christ. And during the transition period, Old Covenant Judaism was still a variable religion. Okay, They were still going, still sacrificing, still carrying this on. He hadn't totally shut it down yet. They were the Jews that hadn't trusted Christ. They're still under the law because the Old Covenant is still in effect. However, Jewish and Gentile Christians were not under the law of the Old Covenant. They were under the New Covenant made by Christ by the blood of the cross. Now, let me add this here, because I think this is important. The ending of the law in AD 70 does not mean that we are lawless today. I hear so many preterists, although everything ended in AD 70, we don't have to do that, we don't have to do and, Okay, if you're trying to support your lifestyle, I understand why you're preaching this, okay? But if you're trying to be scriptural, no, that's not how it works, okay? Paul said to the Corinthians, To those outside the law, I became as one outside the law. Not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside the law. Listen, as believers, we are under the law of Christ. Okay, we're not under Old Covenant. We've never been under Old Covenant law. 
So those people that try to put you on, and it's amazing how many people try to bind Christians up, you know, tell them you're going to hell because you're not doing this. And what in the world? 613 of them. We're in trouble, okay? All kinds of stuff. But, you know, that's, it's just ridiculous. You just have to understand what's going on in the Scriptures. We're not under the law as a means, we're not under the new covenant law as a means of salvation. It's a way of life. Believers are to live in obedience to the law of Christ. What is that law? It's the law of love. You know, the Lord, they asked the Lord, but he said, well, guys, I'll make it simple for you. Boil it down to two. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, strength. Love your neighbor yourself. Do this, everything's cool. You know what the New Testament is? It's telling us how to love God with all our hearts, telling us how to love our neighbor as ourselves, and it gives us different and various commandments of how to do those two things, because that's what it's all about. It's the law of love, and the Scriptures, the New Testament teaches us that, and that's why we want to be in it and understand it so we can know how we're to treat our fellow believers. You know, and as many times as I read the Bible, I get in a position where I feel in a certain kind of way, and then I read the Scripture, I'm like, oh, I'm not allowed to feel that kind of way. I've read that before, but I need reminders, and that's why we need constantly be reminded of the Word of the Lord, so we got to spend time in it. People, there are no contradictions in Scripture, and the apparent contradictions can be solved through the law of hermeneutics. We just have to do the research, and it's not, I know it's not simple, I know it's not easy, because the Bible is a huge book, but I'll tell you, the more time you spend in it, the more time you go over it, things start making sense, they start adding up. Um, All right, I appreciate you all being here for that. Uh, Let's pray. Father, thank you for your love for us. Lord, I'm so thankful that we are not under the law. The dietary laws are abolished. Thank you, Lord, for seafood. I appreciate the blessing that it is in our lives, Lord. That just the, the, the fact you've given us so much to enjoy, Lord. I just enjoy the trip into church this morning, just seeing the colors that you have painted, you know, these trees. with it. it's, it's beautiful, Lord. You're so gracious to us. You're so loving. I pray that, Father, we would live our lives in dedication to you, surrendered to you, loving you, giving you, Lord, all you deserve from our hand. Thank you, Father, for your grace to us. Amen. Okay, anybody on the Internet have questions? (laughs) Questions or comments? Mike? Um, It would make sense in Jerusalem because the, uh, the civil laws were connected to the ceremonial laws especially there in Jerusalem. Um, What do you think about, do you think Christians from Colossae, Thessalonians, they would come to Jerusalem for the feasts? Would Christians do that? I I don't know. That's a good question. Would Christians come for the feasts? Well, we know they, you know, I don't know. That that is a good question because they knew they were free from it. They didn't have to do that. But, you know, they might just, I I hear people today, they want to still celebrate the feast. I'm like, well, that's, it's a shadow. So, you know, again, when you have the reality, I don't know why you'd want to cling to the shadow, but they could just go for the fellowship and meet their Jewish brothers and sisters, you know, or or they could be Jews and just want to go back just for, you know, the remembrance. I mean, things, things like that, they get important to people, you know, traditions. And I could see them going back and hanging out with their friends, celebrating that, knowing this has been fulfilled in Christ. That would really be exciting, wouldn't it? To go back and know you had the reality. Let's, hey, this is to remind us what we got now. Cool. Same thing with communion, basically. Do what? Same thing with doing communion all the time. So as a reminder? Yeah. Yeah. Yes, yeah, sure. I, I was, a lot of times when I used to read the scriptures, I always felt like the disciples and or the apostles always did everything right and perfect in time. And then I actually read it for myself <laughs> and realized that none of that was true. Like, no. they would get out of out of that would get wonky and I know that Christ you know he, he tells them very early on that what's coming in the man is not going to defile the man but I believe that Christ most likely kept those dietary restrictions on himself while he was alive right to fulfill the law he had to fulfill it but he told Peter early on and then later Peter hears you know from he sees the vision but yet Paul and Peter had these arguments because of the way Peter was acting or the way Barnabas was acting but I feel like Paul was calling them out, but he himself was doing the same thing. I think, do you know what I mean? <laughs> well, they like, were human. That there's no doubt. You know, they these guys were humans. They were learning. They were growing. You know, it's you know when he read when uh, Eric read the scriptures this morning in Matthew, he says, and whoever does you know the least of these things, you know, should be the least in the kingdom of heaven. And I'm like, well, the Lord did that. He said, you don't have to do this. You know, he's teaching against that. But so you're that's where the confusion comes in. How do we put all this together? And it, it just all fits in the transition time when things were changing from one you know thing to another. <coughs> but 
I'm glad we live in the times we do. I know. I, I just didn't <laughs> think I wanted to live back then, but not a chance. No way. I'm, I'm glad I have it on this side. <laughs> and I think, you know, I think this is important to understand because so many Christians live under condemnation. You know, they just are always feeling guilty. Like, I just am not living up. I'm not making it. I'm not, you know, because of things they hear from other people, you know, laws being put on people. What's, what's the most common Old Covenant law that's put on Christians from the church? Tithing. Tithing. Yeah. Tithing, no doubt. You know, it's amazing. You know, we don't talk about that in the New Testament, but they'll go back and grab these things because they're convenient, you know. And a pastor I worked for said, you know, after long discussion, he agreed with me that it wasn't biblical, but he kept doing it because he said it works. <laughs> yeah, that's very pragmatic Speaking there. Speaking of tithing, as we passed the plate. Yeah. <laughs> Speaking of the plates, where are you? <laughs> Don't want to miss an opportunity. <laughs> Don't want to miss an opportunity. Anybody else? Hey, oh, i got to see if i got any questions. Yeah, I just, just a comment on the book of Romans. You, you mentioned chapter 2. Um, that, you know, there's. I think the more you read Romans, you see that there's this Jew-Gentile problem that's Absolutely. actually being hammered out. That is kind of you know sewn through the fabric of the whole letter. Because you get to chapter 14, 15, and Paul kind of brings out that concrete problem of uh, Jews and Gentiles not getting along. Jews right. or the Gentiles saying we're the strong, you weak uh, Gentiles still. Who are the weak ones? The Jews. I know, but what were they doing that made them weak? The dietary Eating vegetables. <laughs> <laughs> Makes sense, right? I mean, you want to be strong, eat some meat, okay? You know. I mean, I just think that's funny the way you know that was that was the argument there. You know, this is this makes you and he's telling them, don't get in an argument with your brothers over that stuff. You know, accept them. God's made us. And boy, if we could learn that, I think we'd be so farther along. You know, because we really want everyone to be like us because we're right, right? And it doesn't work that way. And I, I, that's. One thing I've grown more and more to appreciate about the body of Christ, you meet so many people different, different aspects, different, you know, and you learn from that, you know, because you come together and you learn from one another. And it's like, oh, because, you know, we don't have much tolerance for people that we don't like if we don't know someone like that, whatever it be, you know. But if we have a friend like, oh, okay, everyone's cool, you know, so whatever it be. And uh, I, that's the beauty of the body of Christ. Good morning. I don't know who this is from. We are thankful to God for the teaching. He brings to so many through you. Thinking about the lady who gave the persecuted church, have not seen her in some time. Hope she's okay. Okay. She's talking about Sharon. Yes, Sharon, uh, there were some complications there. She had to leave because of her son and some issues that were going on there. So, yeah, Sharon is still a great friend. She's just not with us right now. Okay. Yeah, and that's, uh, that's why I mentioned about Veronica today. Because people I know... I guess people here know what's going on, but you out there watching, you see someone all the time, and then they're gone. You're like, hey, what happened to them? You know? Listen, I'm not planning to commit suicide, so if I disappear, something's, <laughs> something's wrong, okay? Rapture. Call. Call. I wouldn't mind if that happened. No puzzle plan. All right, this is from Dean in California. The sting of death is sin. The strength of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, which gives us a victory through the Lord Jesus Christ. Looking through the preterist lens, I realize the sting of death is sin. Adam's sin is the sting of death, and the power of sin is the law. We were legally bound to Adam as our federal head, all fulfilled through the victory we have in Christ. That's some good news. It's some great news, brother. Some awesome news that you know you realize. Like I said, I, if Christians could just realize who they are in Christ and the freedoms they have in Christ, you know, not get bogged down with so much petty stuff. John Mark from Northern California. Thank you, Pastor Curtis. As a new preterist, I've been studying these themes in your messages. Was having a hard time reconciling them. That was a timely message. Thank. I guess that's what I did it for, Mark. John Mark. Thank you. That's pretty cool. This was timely message, and I've been so blessed by it. Blessings to all the BBC, not the British Broadcasting <laughs> Yes. Thank you. Appreciate that. Norm says, so before Calvary, Calvary were the disciples, mostly Jews, under the law, and after the resurrection, not under the law, even though the law was still in force during the transition. The new birth couldn't happen until the resurrection, right? Before resurrection, under the law, after the resurrection, under grace, 
even though the law was still in force. Yeah, I mean, Christ had to die. Okay, so after the death of Christ, that's when the new birth after Pentecost. We, we, I guess we track Pentecost as the birth of the church. That was the beginning. That's when things, that was a promised time, and the Lord came, and from there on, everything changed. And that's what people have to understand. When Christ came, the Jews who didn't trust him, they're no longer Jews. They're done. Okay, they're, they're not the people of God, he said. So they're, they're excluded. And by not the people of God, they're not the people of God. All right? Can one day you explain the contradiction between Luke 24 and Acts 1? Luke says Jesus ascended on the night of the resurrection after 40 days. Yeah, I mean, I don't think there's any contradiction there, but we can talk about that at some point, maybe. Is, is online service considered still assembling? I left my church for reasons. <laughs> All right. Let me just tell you my perspective on this. We have Brian live for those who don't have a fellowship. You know, that's why we started. People can join us, you know, watch us. And we have a chat room there that tries. So you can contact, you can talk to other people, you know. I think if you can go to a brick and mortar church, I think it's the best thing to do because you got connections with people, real face-to-face -face people. So if you can do that, but I couldn't, <laughs> okay, if I wasn't here, I couldn't sit there and listen to somebody talk about Satan constantly and talk about we're ready to get sucked up in the rapture and all. I couldn't, I couldn't deal with that stuff, you know, or the Lordship theology. I couldn't handle it. So I, I, my wife would be going to church alone, <laughs> and I'd be at home looking for something to watch. So I do understand the conflict there, but I, I think if you can be with other Christians, and listen, it doesn't have to be a big assembly. Just meet with some other people. Get, some, get together with some other believers on a regular basis. And that's what's happening right now in Arkansas. You know, a friend of mine's down there, and he's got uh, no friends. You know, what do I do? So he started handing out Glenn's book to people. He handed Glenn's book to a couple. They believed. They saw it. They were like, wow, they came on board. So he said, we want to meet at our house. And so they meet on Sunday morning and watch Marine Live together. Well, now they've got a couple other couples that are coming. They moved it to Sunday night. So these other people come. So now it's growing. And I'm like, this is just so cool. But they're believers getting together, sharing their lives with one another. That's what it's all about. You know, so that's important. I mean, you can get teaching... I was going to say anywhere, but no, not anywhere. But let me say there's a lot of opportunities to get teaching. Okay, there's a lot of people who have stuff online and, and teachings or whatever. So there's a lot of opportunities to get it. But, you know, fellowship is, a, is I just, I, I think there's a premium to fellowship. There's nothing like being face-to-face -face with a brother and sister, talking, sharing, sharing your life, sharing your hurts, you know, whatever. You know, being together. Someone to give you a hug when you need it, you know. Yeah. Yeah. Amen. Amen. Sorry, I just—that's why I'm so thankful. I guess that's why I started a church so I could have fellowship, you know, because you can't, I can't go to one. <laughs> I can start one, you know. <laughs> you know, I often tell people the blessing it is. You know, it was when we we first became predators. It was very difficult, okay, because being ostracized by so many people, being cut off from people you ministered to for so many years. But I would never, I wouldn't change a thing because we have fellowship now like I've never experienced in my whole Christian life. People were so close to it. And I think because the outside world persecutes us, the church persecutes us. We're heretics, whatever. So heretics get together and you like other heretics. You know? It's a fun thing, you know. Get together and share your heretical stuff, whatever. Whatever that is. That's amazing. <laughs> Do you think the four corner sheet could have been a picture of the ark? I don't know. I guess it could have been, but I never thought of it that way. This, you know, there's so much stuff I've never thought about. <laughs> but I mean, I think it's good to think through things like that, but I don't know. This is from Gary and Chris and PA. Good morning. You teach straight from the heart of the Lord. No, I don't know about that. How wonderful it is to be able to fellowship live in our home with you and fellow preterist believers. There's nothing anywhere near us. What a blessing it really is. Thank you. And see, people like Gary and Chris, they're, they're just, they're, you know, this is, our, this is their fellowship, you know, because they have no, nothing else. And I understand that. And like I said, if you, if you don't have something, then, you know, great, join with us. But try to, there's got to be people in your area. You know, find some Christians, convert them to preterism. <laughs> I mean, seriously. You know, it, it, it's not really, if someone has explained the preterist view, for the most part, they're like, yeah, 
I mean, I've talked to people, so many people, and they're like, oh, it's sick. Well, that makes sense. I, until they go talk to their pastor or yes. somebody else. Yeah. Then, it, yeah. oh, yeah. stay away from those people. And you're like, I don't know why, but he said I better do it, you know. Yeah. But if they, if you can get them out of that nonsense, you know that they're not afraid of what somebody else says. I mean, people who are like the scriptures, they're just it just makes sense, you know. Hey, wow, I, I wondered why it said that, you know. Uh, this is from Randy in California. Not a Californians, you know. Get out of there. <laughs> David, thank you for pointing out that Gentiles in Romans two fourteen were Christians. I learned something every time. Well, thank you. I, I appreciate that, Randy. Glad you learned something. Yeah. <laughs> tithing may refer to Melchizedek and tithing. Your thoughts? I, I, yeah, people try to do that. Well, it was before the law. Listen, you're not. Paul made it very clear. You give as the Lord has blessed you. That's what he said. Okay, give as the Lord has blessed you. If you feel blessed, then give. If you don't, then don't do it. Okay, but it's coming from the heart. It's not a commandment. You have to do this. Listen, tithing was never. Um, it was to support the government that's what it was tithing is taxation okay the government was run by the priests they, the money went to them to keep them going okay you're getting you're getting taxed to death right now okay the churches but giving was always free will when Paul's building the temple anyone who wants bring this anyone and then you go hey stop people you never hear that in a church okay stop giving we have too much <laughs> I long for that day <laughs> <laughs> but really, how cool would that be? But I mean, tithing—it's just—it's—it's uh, it's the law. It was just, and it technically tithing was twenty-three and a half percent, twenty-three and a third percent. Okay, because there were three different ties. You know, one every third year. So it, it wasn't—you know—people like ten percent. I said, you want to talk about tithing? Cool, let's talk about it. Okay, you better get up a little bit more <laughs> giving because it has to get up there to twenty-three percent. Okay. And, you know, if the government followed that rule, we'd be a little bit better off if they only took twenty-three percent. Right. <laughs> Jeff McCormick, who's that? Where's he from? <laughs> Galatians 2, 11 through 13. Who exactly were James and the circumcision party that Peter feared? And why were they still apparently doing lost stuff? Were they wrong in their practices? I don't think they were wrong at all. I, like I said, I think that you know, you're in Jerusalem. Everybody's a Jew. If you, if you see Christians getting saved and they're just throwing off the Mosaic Law, they're like, oh, what? they don't get all that. They don't understand any of it. So they're trying to, you know, as Paul said, I want to win the Jews. I become like them. I don't think it's wrong. I don't think, you know, a lot of people think, oh, Paul went in and offered a sacrifice. That's wrong. I don't think it was wrong. You know, you can think it was. That's okay. <laughs> you know, but I think he's just going along, you know, to get along because he wants the gospel to go out to people. It's hard to share things with people that you offend. You understand that? A brother offended is harder one than a walled city, Proverbs says, okay? So you offend somebody, and then you say, let me tell you what, the, I don't want to hear anything you have to say, you know? But if you, you know, you're in a relationship with somebody, and they like you, and, you know, you, they think of you as a decent person, then you got something to tell them. They're like, oh, that's pretty cool. Let me hear what you have to say, you know? Scott from California, another one from California. Do you think preterism is growing with current events in Israel? That's a good question, brother. I think it might be. Um, this, this thing is, I, don't, I can't figure it out really, but it's, you know, we've always said eschatology matters. I think today you can see it with your eyes. It matters because these people are caught up in this. This is the end of the world. You know, they're afraid to death and they're, oh my word, this means it's all over. And you're like, chill, it's nothing, that's nothing to do with anything, you know. But for some reason, it is a hot topic, Okay. The second message I did, National Israel is not God's people, is still blowing up, and I don't understand it. I mean, last, last Sunday it was at 30,000 views. Today it's at 47 a week, and that's unusual, you know. I mean, most of them, okay, they'll, if they're really hot, they'll go up to 10 grand. This is just, and so I'm like, I don't understand. Either someone posted it somewhere where it's getting a lot of hits or something, but if you know why it's blowing up, maybe you're out there and you watched it 47,000 times. <laughs> Let me know. I'm trying, to figure, I'm trying to figure out what's going on. Jordan? Uh, no, I was saying a friend of mine is in the health freedom movement, not a Christian, um, but he's posting constantly about Israel and this stuff. And so I shared uh, you know, your sermon with him about it. And he's, he's talked about us doing a podcast with him because we would reach a right. lot of people. And I said, this is a perfect chance to talk about fulfillment. Um, but I was going to ask a question, and it's sort of tangential, but we talked about Romans 2, and people love to use that as, you know, these 
the regular man, the, the natural man, already has the law in their heart. But they also use, and the Reformed do this, especially like the, the Bonson side, is they use Romans 1, 18. Right, exactly. Mm-hmm. And I know you kind of have gone, because you talk about gospel and the stars and all that, but right. are you, do you think 118 was really just toward the Jews, or you still hold that it's to every Well, no, I, I've kind of changed my view on that since understanding the divine council. I think that's referring to the people prior, you know, to the Lord turning everybody over after Babel and just walking away. I think they knew God. That's the key there. They knew God. They glorified not as God. Okay, who knew him? Who was it? And so if I go back to, okay, I think the Divine Council, and I redid that message on that because of that. And I think that, you know, we have to understand these people had a relationship. God was communicating with them. He's talking to them. And they just kept ignoring him, ignoring him. Finally, he says, I'm done with you. Boom. So they knew God. They glorified him not. Therefore, he turned them over. Gotcha. He turns them over to false gods. And I see that all the time in apologetics is they still appeal to this. Everybody knows God. They just suppress I know. It, to I me, it's so re- it's it's so common, but I just like, why do I think, no, this is not this is not right at all. You know, the only way anybody comes to God is if God moves and changes their heart. Okay? People say, well, the natural world, they see this. No, you can't come to believe. Through, you can't come to believe through the Scripture unless God opens your heart, gives you life. Until then, you don't see it. Okay? The natural man doesn't get it at all. So that's, yeah, that's very important. But you're, you're right. Most, most Reformed people are like, oh, wait, all men have this knowledge of God in there. Okay, what brings it out? How, how all of a sudden does it, you know, oh, they see a star shoot one day and they, oh, there must be a God. I'm going to believe in him. No, you can't do that. You can't get to the God of Scripture by looking at stuff out of it. No, you can't at all. The only way you get to the God is through the Word of God. You know, and he's got to open your heart so you can see it. So, 